Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today, our guest is Steve Weisbrot, EVP, Notice and Strategy Partner at the Angian Group. Steve is nationally recognized as a class action notice expert and one of the premier thought leaders in class action administration. He is a leading proponent for the use of digital and social media in the class action notification industry. Prior to joining the AGN Group, he was the Director of Class Action Services at a leading class action claims administration company. Following a decade in private law practice associated with several leading firms where he concentrated his practice on complex civil cases. Steve, I've given our listeners some insight into your role and background. Can you expand on what I've said and give us a glimpse into your role at Angian Group? Sure. Thank you, first of all, Nicole, for uh, having me on the podcast. I appreciate it, and I look forward to um, to speaking to your listeners. Angian Group is a notice and claims administration firm. Uh, a lot of people who are outside of the class action space don't necessarily know what that means, but we are the organization that is tasked with and approved by the court to notify class members that a particular case has settled or has been certified. Uh, we consult with the attorney is on the best way to do that, whether it's using traditional U.S. postal mail, digital media, social media, magazines, etc. And then we ultimately distribute the funds, meaning we are sending out the checks and we're handling the back-end taxes for the qualified settlement fund and sort of all the administrative nonsense that the attorneys don't want to deal with on the day in and day out or just can't deal with because of the sheer volume of um, reaching, in some cases, hundreds of thousands or millions or in some cases, even billions of class members. That's where we come in. And then my particular niche within that company is that I am the testifying expert as to how to best notify the class and giving the court all of the data that they need to evaluate whether a settlement is fair, adequate, and reasonable and can approve it. Do you have a lot of direct competitors in that space or is this somewhat unique? No, there are. There, there are about five particularly established firms. We're the young, uh, the young, scrappy startup. We've been doing this for three years. We only began our business three years ago, and we've had a fairly meteoric rise to success. We are immediately a household name in, um, it, it, with most law firms who practice in this area. But um, I liken the competitive landscape to a knife fight in a phone booth, if that gives you any indication of what it's like. Tell me, what would be the differentiating factors? What sets your firm apart as the young scrappy startup? Is it price? Is it something you do specifically? Is it this focus on social media and digital? Well, truthfully, a lot of it is the focus on social media and digital. Um, we're, we're living in a rapidly evolving media landscape. And for years and years and years, the default way to let class members know that a class action had settled would be to take out an ad in Parade magazine. I'm not going to say we never do that. There are circumstances where you do need to utilize traditional media, but we are using not just digital and social, but we're using some of the most advanced tactics in both of those realms. Stuff like class member retargeting, search retargeting, all sorts of Madison Avenue media tactics that none of our competitors are particularly interested in utilizing because they break with the traditional mold. And we started we started this company to break with the traditional mold, to do it better, to do it faster, to do it cheaper. In fact, the tagline of the company is changing the rules. 
really interested in the topic and really how you've grown and become one of those key firms in that space. Before we jump into that, are there personal strengths or habits that you have that have allowed you to be successful in growing your business, uh, both at the Angian Group and before when you were more in private practice? What personal strengths and habits did you bring to the table? Well, none really. I've actually been successful in spite of myself, which is pretty interesting. I'm a big proponent of establishing and maintaining your competency by reputation. I think it's hugely important. And what it takes to be competent in different areas is obviously very different. But whatever your area is, I think it's essential that you establish competency. And I also think that being persistent and being sociable are both hallmarks of individuals who are good at business development. And I think they've certainly helped me along the way. So give us an example of persistence. I mean, how you would be persistent in a business environment. Our business, like most businesses, is uh, relationship-based. And, you know, it's hard to meet everyone. And, of course, I ask for referrals, and most people ask for referrals. But asking for a referral once is not going to get the job done in 90 95% of the time. Constantly reminding people that, hey, you know, we had had a conversation where you said you were going to introduce me to Prospect X. I'd really like to follow up on that. Now, granted, there's a fine line between being persistent and being overbearing, but if you learn where that is, is and you can tow that, it's going to serve you well in your career. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, you also mentioned being social. Are there particular groups you are in that uh, are focused in this space or is it more through day-to-day, either your personal life and or professional networking? Is there specific things you do? I am involved in class action specific organizations and I try to speak at those things and and create authorship uh, to be distributed. But I think more than anything, you know, when I was applying for my first job, my grandfather said to me, he's like, you know, just be the kind of guy that someone wants to have a beer with. And it sounds silly, but I think that is really what's most important. It's, you can't feel like you're networking. You can't be talking about business all the time. You know, you have to find and make connections with people outside of that world and the business will come from that. So I think it's just about getting out there, asking people questions, learning what they're into and finding those kind of ties that bond. No, I absolutely agree with you. It's something I was discussing with someone recently, and they said, your approach, Nicole, is more about education. You don't really do the hard sell. And I said, no, that's just, that's just not who I am. You know, I tell people what I do and then make sure that I stay in front of them from a more informational perspective. It's interesting how that leads to business. It's not the direct ask all the time, right? It's, it's the ask here and there. The meaningful ask. There you go. Meaningful ass. That's a great way to put it. In your approach, you know, have you used a particular growth strategy? Have you sat down and planned how you were going to grow this portion of Angie's business? Have you set up a new year plan and then referred to that plan? What is the strategy you use to grow the business a certain amount? Yes, there is a formal marketing plan and there is an idea where we want to go, what sectors of the industry we want to target. But I hearken back to what I said earlier. If you become a trusted resource, not a vendor, 
someone who's putting out content, someone whose opinion matters, your prospects really will call on in sort of a consultative role. You, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. And I know that's contrary to what all the marketing gurus say. And listen, we do the planning as well, but it's almost a formality. If you get out there and you become, say you become a trusted resource in your industry, I think thought leader is a, is sort of a silly, a silly terminology. But in any case, if you're out there and you're seen as competent and you're seen as really knowing your stuff and you know, you're the kind of guy, someone wants to have a beer with or the kind of gal someone wants to have a glass of wine with and you're competent, business is going to come from that. And I think so often people overthink it and make it overly technical. That being said, we have had several specific initiatives that have been very useful in growing our business. I absolutely agree with you. It's overcomplicated. To your point, if you know what you do and do well, and you basically educate others to the fact that you do what you do and do it well, that business will come. I absolutely agree. If there is a unique strategic program that you've executed, of course, our listeners would be all ears around that as well. I do think when they're asked, what are you doing for business development? There's a tendency to want to answer with something specific. Sure. So these really go back to the core values of Angie and then they go directly to our marketing. We use digital, we use social, we use video. And that's what we suggest attorneys use in their class members. We're using it to reach them. One of our most successful business development strategies has been a video series that we host called Angie's Leading Litigator Series. You can see it at angiengroup.com. And in that series, I interview sort of the figureheads of both the plaintiff and defense bars about their practice is, but also about what makes them unique as individuals and what their favorite books are and kind of take the Tim Ferriss approach to an interview. And it's really been successful on multiple levels. When we were a young, scrappy startup in a very competitive industry, to have video out there in the ether of someone like me interviewing some of the most successful and nationally recognized attorneys in the country creates a halo effect, a immediate sense of legitimacy in most of the viewers' minds. Then obviously, there's benefit of being able to sit down and have these interviews with people who are targets in your industry and who who you wanted to know and who might or might not have actually sat down with you, but for uh, your desire to interview them. And you know you can use this across a lot of different industries, and it doesn't necessarily have to be video. Perhaps you have a newsletter you put out, or perhaps you're going you're to do a podcast. There's a million different ways to do it, but there's really incredible success. The second really strategic best practice that I would that I would offer is take advantage of social and and digital it's so easy to target your exact prospect if you're for instance, in the legal vertical, and you're selling e-discovery or you're selling court reporting services, you can go to Facebook and you can have your ads show up for employees of X firm. It's an easy targeting tactic. If, you're, if your target is to get in touch with everyone at Skadden Arps, anyone who is identified as a Skadden employee, you can then target on Facebook. You can further refine that by geographic proximity you can, and, and you can further refine it by a number of different variables. And then if you want to go completely full circle, the best thing you can do is take whatever content you're putting out, the video you're putting out, the interview, what have you, and have that 
B, what you're advertising via Facebook, and you create this sort of circle where you're using all of your all of your business development tactics at once, and you're able to refine who sees it and when they see it and how often they see it. And I think that's a winning combination. It's fantastic. As an approach, you can imagine putting together a video series has you know some resource requirements, let's say it that way. But also what's nice about it is it lives on. That said, those are kind of larger things. From a tactical perspective, do you have specific things that have been part of your wheelhouse? For example, when I go to a conference within 24 hours, maximum 48, I follow up with every person that I met. And, you know, it's a short note. It's nothing lengthy. It's a short note saying, you know, great to meet you. Let's connect on LinkedIn. And then I send the invitation. And I might say something more specific about what we discussed if we did discuss something. If I didn't meet the person, so say it was a speaker and I didn't have the opportunity to meet them, I would still do that. You know, are there tactical things like that that you've incorporated into the way you do business? First of all, I think that's a great tactic, and I think you should absolutely connect with people, whether or not you have the opportunity to actually meet them. The one thing that I really suggest doing is is listening, and listening digitally. And what I mean by that is people are talking about your services or your industry all the time on Twitter. And you can go in and search on Twitter and see what's being said. And you can't just passively listen. You need to add to the dialogue. You need to interface with the people who are speaking on Twitter about about what's important to them and your company. And by doing that, you're establishing yourself as an expert, whether you realize it or not. Not everyone in your industry is going to be on Twitter. But as soon as you start being active, you created this persona that lives there. And you're the guy who does X and you talk about X. And when those people think, hey, who does X? You're going to be that guy. And it's very easy to search and get right into the meat of the conversation on those items that are most important to you. Also a huge proponent of handwritten notes, despite the fact that I write like a doctor and not a lawyer. I think that so few people in this digital age actually receive mail written from someone. And I think it it resonates with people. I think those are things that I do very well. And and going back to your point about contacting people after a conference, I want to dovetail that into my point about being persistent. I can't tell you how many times I've sent those messages and heard crickets and then sent a follow-up message saying, hey, never heard back from you, would really love to grab lunch. Still, nothing. A third time, you know, and and set a tickler. Do it for three months from now. You know, it's a slow build. Eventually, some of those people end up going to lunch with you and becoming good clients. So keep being persistent and move forward. People often say, thank you for being persistent. Steve, how about a success story? Is there a client or a client situation where you feel, wow, based on something you did, you were able to secure a piece of business, possibly a piece of business you didn't think you would have the opportunity to secure. Sure. So sort of funny story talking about this video series that we did. There was a particular prospect who I called on very early in Angian's Genesis. And it was probably too early. He was uh, he was a very potentially big client, incredibly smart individual. Our meeting was not ideal in any way, shape or form. He asked some probing questions and they were questions that maybe we weren't ready to address yet. And we were sort of overconfident in setting the meeting with him. 
That being said, we moved on and we became an incredibly successful company with credibility uh, throughout the country and have handled some of the largest and most complex cases in the country. And we started doing this video series. And I would monitor, um, as would my marketing department, who was opening the videos and how many times they were opening the videos and whether they were sharing the videos. And it became apparent to us that this particular prospect was very interested in the content we were putting out. In the spirit of persistence, I reached back out to him and I said, hey, uh, would you be interested in being featured on our video series? And he accepted. And it was one of the most well-viewed and one of my favorite interviews to this day. And as a result, we kind of reopened those lines of dialogue and we were able to bid on a good amount of this person's work. We didn't win every case. It was certainly wasn't a quid pro quo, but we did get a very meaningful and sizable piece of business out of it. But for following the metrics of the video series, actually producing the video series and having the persistence and, and dare I say it, courage to reach back out to this individual, we never would have been there. So I, I consider that to be a success story. It is. I think that happens not always because it's the beginning of a company and it was, you know, quote unquote, too soon. But most often it's because it wasn't the right situation. And they went in to talk about a piece of business that they were looking to obtain and it wasn't the right piece of business to go after. And so that idea to have the courage and go back. One of the things that I say to clients, all they can say is no. It's not a negative against you personally. It's a, hey, it's not the right solution for us at this time. It's not a no forever. It's not a no because I don't like you in most cases. It's just no. And you can always go back. They can not return your call. They can not respond. But getting a little bit of tough skin around that is is part of it. The courage to pick up the phone or send the email. I think, you know, if you can change your mindset around that, it, it definitely definitely helps. Absolutely. You can't see me right now, but I am nodding voraciously. You know, you have to have a little bit of a thick skin. You know, there's a famous sales quote. I don't remember who said it, but it was uh, timid salespeople have skinny kids. And I, and I think that there's a lot of truth to that, right? And I I tend not to buy into that doctrinal sales stuff from, from many years ago, but for whatever reason, that one sort of stuck with me. And, you know, you have to grow a thick skin. And if, you know, the answer is no, the answer is no on that day at that time, not necessarily for There you go. So in 2008, there was a change and the economy changed. And I would suggest that professional services probably had a little bit of a cushion before most professional services firms were affected. Today, things are different in professional services. They are different in a lot of ways. There's a lot of alternatives. Uh, There's a lot of technology. There's a lot of discussion around rates. In your business today, is there a different approach that you can say was based on the fact that the economy changed? Have changing market conditions affected your business? Frankly, no. It's more Supreme Court decisions that affect my business, contracting and the ability to prove class claims. The legal industry as a whole has obviously become a lot more rate sensitive. Our particular niche is a little more unique. I still believe in answer to the question you were asking, asking me, how do you deal with rates and and everyone wanting the low bidder? And, and it goes back to something I said before. Relationships and competency are going to trump rates 99% of the time. 
the HR star. No one ever got fired for hiring someone they trust that has done the work for them a hundred times well before. You go out on a whim, you hire someone new because you wanted to save a couple of nickels. People have a lot of risk in doing that. And I think that there are ways to subtly remind your best contacts of that. Every once in a while, you're going to lose a case based on rates. It happens. It happens to law firms. It happens to vendors. It happens all over the place. But competency and relationships almost always, in my book, trump price. Organizations don't remember that they got a slightly lower price. They definitely remember if the work was done well or not done well. Delivering that value, delivering the solution that you've agreed to deliver absolutely should trump price. Many of our listeners, Steve, are millennial, they're mobile, they're global. One third of our listeners, of our 4,000 listeners, are not in North America. What advice would you have for someone who is starting their career and is looking to really start the business development side of their business? I mean, the most important thing I'll say is guard your reputation and build it on competence. If you're known for anything else, if you're known for being the fun guy at the bar, that'll get you a meeting. That's not going to get you work. Yeah, you have to be competent and you, and you have to constantly be adding to the dialogue of your industry, regardless of what your industry is. You need to be authoring white papers. You need to be speaking at relevant conferences. You need to be out there and become a part of the community and have people feel like you and them are on an equal plane field, regardless of the fact that you're selling something and they're buying something. That being said, stop selling. It's not about selling. It's about building relationships. It's about building trust. It's about building. It's not about selling. And lastly, like I said, we are in such a different world. The ability to use the technology that we have to find the right people to build relationships with is simply something we've never seen before. And really wrapping your head around it and understanding it and or hiring someone to help you with it if you're in that sort of situation who does understand it is absolutely essential in today's market environment. Tweeting Facebook, I had a guest, Adrian Dayton, who has a company, Clearview Social, and he is a huge proponent of Facebook for legal services for lawyers. And he believes that that is where people are most reminded of the relationships they have and will remember and go back to that person when there is a business opportunity. Of course, LinkedIn as that professional network as well. Are those the areas in which you feel? that folks should focus? I think it's really vertical specific what you do. But what I was suggesting was using Facebook's targeted ads to build your reputation amongst the people who you need to be in front of. Same thing with Twitter. Um, even the way you said it, oh, just tweet. It's not It's not about retweeting and putting, putting something out there. It's about really having a conversation online. It's about posting something that's relevant, but don't just post something that's relevant. Give the people your, your three-second take on it. How long does it take? You only have 140 characters. I'm in an industry where it is essential that I remain neutral. I'm a court-appointed third-party neutral who administers a settlement. So I am, of course, careful not to come across as partisan one way or another. But I can certainly comment on what I'm putting out there so long as it's clear that I am neutral. And I am. It's important, even with constraints like that, which is very unique to my industry, that you're out there and you're part of the conversation. And in large part, that conversation is to taking pace on social media now, especially amongst lawyers. Lawyers are slow adopters of new technology, but even lawyers are now part and parcel of the digital and social ecosystem that we all live in. 
It's interesting. And this gentleman, Adrian Dayton, wrote a book tweeting for lawyers. How do you do that? And how do you do that in a way that you feel is appropriate? You can clearly review and use your best judgment with 140 characters. It's not a lengthy opinion, that idea you have to share. If you're just posting, retweeting, and suggesting that someone look at other people's work, you can do that in between, but you have to be, to your point, part of the conversation. I think those are our very strong points. We're hearing more and more about professionals getting more comfortable with that media and using that media to talk about their business. What do you enjoy most about the work that you do? The people. I have the privilege of getting to speak with, learn with, debate with some of the smartest attorneys in the country. And I don't say that to pander to them. It just, it's just the truth. The class action bar is highly competitive. Antitrust theory requires incredible legal minds. And just to be able to have those people in my life and that kind of free flow of respectful dialogue concerning things that are very very important to all of our businesses, whether you're a plaintiff's attorney, a defense attorney, or someone like me who is a third party neutral, all of these legal decisions that flow around the concept of Rule 23 in class actions are meaningful to all of us, although for very, well, for very different reasons. And to be able to meet with those people and talk with those people and go out for great meals or a glass of wine with those people is, is an amazing thing. I just really feel fortunate I get to have such great conversation with such great people virtually every day of my career. It's a great way to earn a living, to be able to associate with and spend time with people you enjoy being with. Informative interview. Appreciate you sharing your thoughts, Steve, with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to make before we say goodbye? If you're not enjoying what you're doing, it's so clear that I do, you're not going to do it well. So if you constantly find yourself trying to put a square peg into a round hole, you're not doing the right thing. And it took me a lot of years of practicing at a lot of different law firms for me to realize that personally. And if any of your listeners could hear that and kind of have an aha moment and say, you know what, I'm not enjoying this. Find something else that you enjoy and you will do it better and you will get more success and you will garner more recognition. Your life will be inevitably better if you just do something you enjoy. By doing something you enjoy, you will necessarily be doing it well. Great last point, Steve. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. Left Foot.